This is an amazing documentary called Please Vote For Me, about an election in a third-grade class by a filmmaker named Wei Jun Chen. It takes place in a city called Wuhan in central China. The eight-year-olds are told that they're going to vote to decide who is going to be the class monitor. It's the first election in their school ever. None of them has ever witnessed or taken part in anything like this at all. Isn't this new? Their teacher asks them. And one of the three candidates, a little butterball of a kid named Chen Chen, turns out to be a natural politician. With no adults prompting him, he immediately starts buttonholing his classmates, making promises. Vote for me, he tells the little boy. I'll make you steady committee officer. Quickly, the parents get involved, coaching the kids, helping write their speeches. One dad, who's with the police department, basically wins the election for his son by arranging for a class trip on the city's monorail, which the kids love. And by giving his son little presents to hand out to every kid in the class moments before they vote. But the kids' own instincts are really interesting to watch, too. There's this scene where one of the candidates, a girl named Xiaofei, is about to do a flute recital as part of the competition. Her two friends are going to dance a ballet with red scarves behind her as she plays. Before she starts, though, Chen Chen tells a friend, after Xiaofei performs, you must shout, that's terrible. Got it? Which results in a whole group of kids, including Chen Chen and Luo Lei, Luo Lei's the other candidate in this race, taunting her. Xiaofei, Xiaofei, slowest eater. Xiaofei, Xiaofei, rotten gossip. Xiaofei looks around confused. Nothing like this has ever happened. And she's little, right? Her feelings are right on her face. She blinks. She looks over to her teacher for help. And she looks down and winces and starts crying. Another little girl in pink at her desk, she starts crying too, witnessing this. The teacher calls a break, ushers Xiaofei from the room. Chen Chen then goes to Xiaofei in the hallway and says, I apologize to you for Luo Lei. As if Luo Lei was the one who organized the chanting, not him. Then he gets Luo Lei to apologize. And then, not only is Xiaofei crying, both the little boys, they both burst into tears also. Remember, they're all just eight years old. The camera moves down the aisle of the classroom and we see lots of other kids are crying as well. It's like they accidentally invented negative campaigning on their own, in their own classroom, tried it out, and then realized just how mean and wrong it is. Something adults seem to forget sometimes. Today on our show, we have stories of children thrust into the world of politics, a world that is really built for adults with thicker skins. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our show in three acts, as children take up presidential politics, global warming, and in our last act, they're put in charge of their own school. Make all the rules, including discipline. Stay with us. Act one, trickle-down history. Now we move to a group of teachers in California, teachers who are sending their students out to understand a very American kind of politics, presidential politics. Sterling Kine tells the story. When I was in high school, my class took a trip to the Richard Nixon Library. I remember putting on a pair of large headphones that whispered snippets of the Watergate recordings into my ears. I remember being shown into this little carpeted room. 
our teacher tells us we're in luck. There's a very special guest there for us that day. We hope it's someone good. A man with a flat top haircut enters. His name is H.R. Haldeman. He has something important to tell us. We hope he wants to tell us that he is not the real special guest. We have no idea who he is. If your history is a little foggy, H.R. Haldeman was President Nixon's chief of staff. He was a pal and a confidant. When recordings of Nixon in the White House were released, there were hours and hours of recorded conversations between the two of them on the phone, like a couple of mean girls plotting how to take over the rest of the school. After Watergate broke, it became clear that Haldeman was involved, and he turned in his resignation. It was a big enough deal that Nixon went on TV to announce it. Today, in one of the most difficult decisions of my presidency, I accepted the resignations of two of my closest associates in the White House, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman. Nixon threw his good friend H.R. Haldeman under the bus. Haldeman was convicted of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and perjury. He served 18 months in prison, passing the time by working as a chemist in the prison sewage treatment plant. Once he was released, he got involved in various business ventures. He became the owner of eight Sizzler Steakhouses. He receded into normal life, apparently only to resurface for the occasional public appearance in front of a room full of high school students. That day in the library, we didn't know about any of Haldeman's history. I, for one, would have appreciated being told about the Sizzler Steakhouse part up front. I remember clearly that Haldeman seemed like this sad, broken man. He wasn't wearing a suit. He didn't seem like someone with any authority, someone who was a part of history. It seemed clear that Haldeman was there that day to get us to stand in his shoes and see Watergate from his perspective. It was a very freaky Friday kind of moment. See how hard it is to be an adult for a day. And, if you'll allow me this tangent, I was reminded of all this recently when I heard about something similar happening now in Simi Valley, California. That's where the library is for California's other Republican president, Ronald Reagan. On a sunny Friday morning, I watch a class of fifth graders climb down off their school bus in their especially nice field trip clothes. They're here because the library does these reenactments, where the students actually get to play Ronald Reagan and his various staff members, stand in Reagan's shoes for the day. The kids file inside, where a cheerful woman who works for the library stands in front of a large map, with countries either in red or blue. Who wants to tell me about the map? What do you know about the map? Yes. All of the red countries are the um, communist countries. Excellent. Very good. Is this what our map, is this a map of what it looks like today? No, when is this map? What are we looking at? What time period? Yes, sir. The 1980s. Very good. Actually, 1983. And in 1983, who was president? Ronald Reagan. Very good. So in It's obvious the kids have been studying Ronald Reagan all week, and in particular the invasion of Grenada. One of the great things about tagging around on an elementary school field trip is you relearn all the history lessons that you've not only forgotten, but question whether you ever learned in the first place. Do you remember anything at all about the invasion of Grenada? Don't worry. They'll explain to us. In 1983, Grenada is what color? Everyone tell me. Red. Very good. It's red. That means it's a communist country. The kids go on to talk about the rebels who overthrew the Grenadian government in 1983 and about the group of 800 or so American medical students who were stranded there and who became instant pawns in U.S. Cold War politics. But why do we really care about what's going on in Grenada? 
There's a specific reason why we're so concerned, specifically why President Reagan was concerned. Yes, sir. Because they might have joined armies and take over the U.S. Okay. So we have Cuba, we have Grenada, and there's also Nicaragua at the time that are all communist, and they're kind of close to the United States. So it could be that it causes a problem from the United States if they were to come to us and want to maybe make us communists, right? That's right. We were afraid Cuba, Grenada, and Nicaragua, with their collective population of 13 million, would come over, defeat the largest military in the world, and turn us all communist. And then, just in case there's any doubt in the kids' minds about how terrible this would be, a staff member gives them a quick primer on the evils of communism. In a communist country, you have limited rights and freedoms. If you wanted to go and get a job and earn a living, could you keep your money? Could you? Who has all the money in a communist country? What do you think? The government. The government. Very good. Now, if you wanted to buy some land or you wanted to buy a home, you wanted to buy property, could you do that in a communist country? Who owns all the property? Everyone. Very good. The reason for all this studying up is that the kids are going to reenact the invasion. The class is divided up, with one-third playing members of the Oval Office, one-third playing the press, and one-third playing the military. And one kid will play Ronald Reagan himself. The staff begins to hand out badges, designating which kid is what. Secretary of State, Nicolette Schultz. The military commanders are next, followed by the press. The naming of one little girl as White House bureau chief prompts a classmate to mutter, I knew it, under his breath. I ask him why, and he tells me that one time when they were in kindergarten, she played a news anchor, so... His voice trails off. Without fail, the kids ooh and awe over every position that is called out. The kids are ushered to a room with three closed doors. The library is really fancy. Flat-screen TVs flash on, and actors playing nondescript officials explain the kids' mission and the potential consequences of their actions. When you walk through these doors, you will no longer be students. You will make history. Lives are at stake. Adult staff members are not here to answer questions or help you. The responsibility is entirely yours. President Reagan. Please report to the Oval Office and find your desk. The three doors swing open in unison, revealing three different sets. The Oval Office, the press room, and the command center of a battleship. Everyone goes to their assigned room. The battleship is amazing. It's dimly lit with lots of flashing lights and a gadget with toggle switches in front of every chair. And if there's anything a kid loves, it's toggle switches. Welcome to the Command Decision Center. press corps is led through another door. A staff member flat out lies to them by telling them that the press room is every bit as exciting as a battleship. It looks like a hotel conference room. The best selling point the staff can muster is that the room is large. In fact, the press room is um, bigger than the press room in the White House, so that's pretty exciting. The president and his cabinet head into a replica of the Reagan-era Oval Office, complete with a jar of jelly beans on the desk, which the kids are instructed to not even think about eating. Secretary Weinberger. Today's President Reagan is a blonde fifth grader with an athletic build. My guess is he's a popular kid, but a benevolent one. He seems to take being named leader of the free world in stride, as though it's the sort of thing that happens to him often. Here's how it all works. The invasion is broken down into a series of A or B options. For instance, A, have diplomatic talks with Grenada, or B, evacuate the medical students. 
A. Evacuate the medical students. Or B. Overthrow the communist government. Each kid gets a vote, but President Reagan has final say. Um, well, both of the options are... Well, I considered both of the options, but I think a smaller, faster force, if, if they... Um, let's say the smaller, faster force is overpowered, we have very small chances. If we have a big army coming there, then we have better chances and it will take quicker. So I go with A. The president inputs his answer into a dramatic red phone located right next to the jelly bean jar in his desk. Before they start, the kids were told that there aren't right or wrong answers. But the whole thing's rigged to make what Ronald Reagan did in 1983 look like the most appealing option. Each time the kids choose to do what he did, a bell goes off as though they've won a tropical vacation in Grenada instead of an invasion. Nicely done. That is another correct response according to President Reagan. Excellent work, President Reagan. Ordering a large invasion ensured that we would get the job done. Again and again, President Reagan makes the same decisions as, well, President Reagan. Everything is going great until there's a news flash. Apparently the kids in the press room have been hard at work. An actress playing a reporter appears on the screen. All right, I'm not sure what this is. Let's take a look. Confidential sources tell this reporter that two U.S. aircraft carriers headed to Lebanon have been rerouted to Grenada. Wait a minute, how the did they get this Independence and the U.S. Esquadron carried a large number of Marines. Any of you talk to the press? This is top secret information. I'm not sure how the press got this story, but this is going to cause some problems for us. Here's how it went down. In real life, 1983, the press was somehow tipped off about the story in Grenada. President Reagan and the military had been planning a surprise attack, and so when the news got out, they had to decide whether to go ahead with the invasion, even though Grenada would be waiting for them, or to abort. President Reagan, again, like his predecessor, President Reagan, decides to stick with the plan. The red phone dings. The U.S. goes to war for three days. After it's over, the staff does a little debrief with everyone. They talk with the kids about what happened, pointing out how it was especially bad when they lost the element of surprise. How did we lose the element of surprise? What happened? Yes, sir. Reporters um, somehow figured out the information, that which was top secret, and ruined the surprise. All right, so President Reagan, now that we know that it's the reporters, we saw the report, what are you going to do to them for releasing this information? The staff asked the kids if the press had a right to tell the public. They go over the nuts and bolts of what freedom of the press means and decide that what the reporters did was legal. They can't have any consequences for what they did. However, just because they have the freedoms, do all of you think that they should have used that freedom today? No. No. Now, we did lose some military lives. I'm here to inform you that we lost 19 soldiers in the fighting. Now, we can't directly say that's because of the press, but did it help that they released the story? No. No, No, it certainly didn't help. No one points out that those 19 soldiers might have lived if the Oval Office had done things differently. Or that invading countries is a dangerous business, and casualties tend to come with the territory. Instead, one by one, you can see it on the kids' faces, how it could have been perfect if only it wasn't for the press. And then the staff tells the kids they're going to rejoin their classmates, the ones that were in the other room, playing reporters. 
Now it is time for me to take you into the press room for a press conference. That means you're going to see the press. I ask you to be polite, but point out to them that maybe their actions had some consequences today. Come on in. Did you guys see our story? Did you like our story? No. 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 What? I like that. So you guys saw our story, but you didn't like it? No. no. We destroyed our plan. We destroyed our plan. We destroyed your plan? Yes. Everyone is trying to get in as much glaring and as much head shaking as possible. 19 for 800. The phrase element of surprise and 19 dead comes up again and again and again. The kids seem genuinely upset. I don't understand. What plan did we destroy? One representative. Yes. Well, um... The reason why we really didn't want it to go out was because if we, if they didn't know, we would still have the 19, and we would still, um, we would still like, we would still have it. Just it ruined our plan of action. It's a strange experience watching little kids struggling to become adults before their time. They were too young to understand exactly what had just happened, but old enough to feel guilt about the blood on their hands. It surely must have been the first time in their lives that they'd been accused of causing a person's death, and yet they took to it so naturally. I know Reagan isn't Nixon, and Grenada isn't Watergate. And that difference is particularly stark when you've been to both their respective libraries, like I have. In Reagan's, he's celebrated as a winner. In Nixon's, the tone is apologetic. But both libraries are saying the same thing. See it my way. I recently called up the Nixon Library to ask them about the day my class met H.R. Halderman. They dug up an old program, and they also sent me a list of questions the adults gave us to ask him. They might as well have been lifted straight off the transcripts of the Watergate hearings. Why didn't you burn the White House tapes? How do you think the 18-and-a-half-minute gap occurred? Why did your critics want you out? Are you sorry? From the second Haldeman opened his mouth, we could tell he was angry and that this wasn't like any field trip we'd ever been on before. He hadn't prepared a speech or anything like that. He would start barking his answers at us before we had even finished getting the questions out. An L.A. Times article about the visit quotes him as saying, For Pete's sake, don't believe what you read in history books just because of the fact that those words are printed. He told us he was improperly convicted and never had a chance during his trial because of the so-called judge. He kept reminding us of all the good Nixon had done, that we shouldn't be mad at Nixon for Haldeman's downfall. It wasn't his fault. Even the proximity of where he was standing felt off. He was too vulnerable and close, as though he was practically sitting down on the floor with us. Despite his gruffness, I do actually remember feeling really sorry for him. He seemed to care more about what we thought about him than what our teachers or any other adults did. They'd already formed their opinions. He meant nothing to us. And that meant something to him. It meant someday, when we told our kids about Bob Haldeman, history wouldn't have to win just because those words are printed. And it worked. I liked him. I didn't think he was innocent, but I felt bad he wasn't. Different school groups cycle through the Reagan Library throughout the day. I have to wait to the last one before I get to see what happens when a kid tries to alter the script. Secretary Baker? That kid is William Miller, a skinny boy with glasses who's playing Ronald Reagan this time. 
The way his suit jacket hangs on him reminds me of the kind of movie where the kid is turned into an adult and then back into a kid. William is quiet and thoughtful. Each time he's called upon to make his decision, he adds his own special touch. He insists on consulting with a little girl playing Vice President Bush. It's hard not to see it as half-sound political strategy on the president's part and half-crush. And Vice President, may I please ask you a quick question? Why do you personally think that it should be B? Um, it's just uh, safer and less risky than A. Okay, thank you. This group tackles the same questions as the first group, whether to discuss or evacuate, and then whether to evacuate or invade. As the theatrics start to pick up, William looks worried. He quietly reads the library's instructions to himself. The decision is not to be lightly taken lightly. Using military force for any reason is risky and may cost innocent lives. There's a beeping sound like a time bomb is about to go off. President Reagan again consults his VP, shooting a look at the clock. Well, I think I'm going to go with vote A. And for the reason for that is if we do go to war with um, Grenada, there's also the threat that other communist countries like the Soviet Union could also come in and help to try to defeat us. And I don't think that that's necessary to have that. So. That sensible argument he just made about the Soviet Union wasn't fed to him by an adult. He came up with it on his own. And it's at this point that William goes off script. He goes against the real Reagan. He decides not to invade, to just get the Americans out. Feeling good about his choice, President Reagan picks up the red phone and punches in A. The sound that comes out of the phone is one that anyone who's ever watched a game show on TV will immediately recognize as the sound of being wrong. U.S. government will only overthrow the government of another nation if it believes that nation poses a direct, specific threat to American safety. In 1983, President Reagan decided that Grenada presented such a threat and ordered a full-scale military operation to replace Grenada's hostile communist government with a friendly democracy, a government similar to our own. President Reagan soldiers on, despite now knowing that he will be overtaken by the tide of history no matter what he does. Soon the same fake reporter comes on again, saying that the press has leaked the story. The kids rush to the president's desk. Abort the mission. Abort the mission. Abort the mission. Abort. 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 Everyone's Abort. William agrees. They should abort the mission. He figures they can go back to the original plan of just evacuating the students and then invade later when they've gotten the element of surprise back. He warily inputs his answer into the red phone. Okay, let's see what President Reagan did in 1983. Let's see. It sounds like they continued on Sometimes the in the heat of the moment, even the best leader can lose sight of what's most important. In this case, the safety of the American students and the freedom of the Grenadian people. President Reagan looks stricken. His coat seems bigger than ever. Again, the class files out. Again, it's the press kids versus everyone else. Again, there's the chaos and blame. All through the library's lobby are clusters of 10-year-olds fighting to the death. We have freedom of speech, right? Right? You killed people. You killed nineteen soldiers. How would you like to be killed? President Reagan is slowly getting swallowed up by the crowd. Adults can sometimes put on this big show, letting you make the decisions, letting you be in charge. 
when what they really want is to convince you that their way is best, that they're not bad people, that the decisions they made were the right ones, and that if you were in their position, you'd have done it the same way. They'd really like you to believe that. Maybe so they can believe it too. Charlie Kine lives in Los Angeles. Coming up, children vote to decide all the rules in their school, including can they play video games while at school. What they decide in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Kid Politics. Stories of what happens when adults, usually educators, put kids in the hot seat and tell them to grapple with adult political decisions. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2, climate's change, people don't. I met this really great, really smart kid who's into politics this summer. All summer, I was watching a lot of Glenn Beck, and I went to that rally that he had in Washington, D.C. And so I'm at the rally, and I'm wandering around, and I'm talking to people in the crowd. How old are you guys? I'm 14, uh, 16. Did you want to be here or are you being dragged along? No, I wanted to be here. I'm the one who watches Glenbeck every day at 5, so... That's Erin Gustafson, a high school freshman, with her older sister Sarah and her mom Michelle. They'd driven up from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia for the rally. Why do you like Glenbeck so much? What do, you, what do you like about his show? Well, for me, it's like a jumping-off point. And I know that it's an opinion show, but... I will hear what he says and, like, the history behind it. And then from there, I can do my own research. We talked about the kinds of things that you talk about at a Glenn Beck rally. Is the president a socialist? The Gustafsons don't think he is. Are they alarmed over the direction the country's going in? They definitely are. They are free market, small government types against saving the big banks, against the deficit. And then I got on the subject of global warming with 14-year-old Aaron. Global warming is propaganda. I'm... That's what I believe, but... Um, Do they teach you that in school, global warming? About global warming, I mean? Yes, they teach you about global warming. Do you argue with your teachers? Not not openly. I, I try, yeah, I try and keep it respectful, and I will answer just by, this is what the book says. I, do, I may not agree with it, but this is what the book says, so this is what I have to answer. The number of Americans who believe that global warming is real has fallen, and the decline is dramatic. Back in 2006, according to a Pew Research Center study, 79% of the public said that there's solid evidence that the Earth is getting warmer. In just three years, the number fell to 57%. Other polls show a similar drop. So climate change activists and scientists are trying to turn it around in a bunch of different ways. And part of that fight is in the classroom. They want to win over kids Aaron's age. The National Science Foundation and NASA are each developing curricula to teach climate change in schools. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fight, bills have been introduced in Kentucky, Oklahoma, and passed in South Dakota. Texas, by the way, has this too, urging teachers to teach both sides in the climate change debate. The South Dakota bill declared carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, but rather a highly beneficial ingredient for all plant life. And with that uh, fight for the hearts and minds of people like Aaron and all of her peers in mind, we booked Aaron into a studio last week at public radio station WMRA in Virginia. One, two, three. Hey, Aaron. Hello. Hey, Aaron. It's Ira. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm wonderful. And yourself? At the same time that we had her, we had in a studio in Colorado at public radio station KGHU a scientist named Roberta Johnson, 
who develops curricula as executive director of the National Earth Science Teacher Association and who studies the climate at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Okay, so Dr. Johnson, meet meet Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hello, Dr. Johnson. Nice to meet you. Dr. Johnson and Aaron Gustafson agreed to come into the studio to do a little experiment that we proposed to both of them. Dr. Johnson would run through the very best material that she thinks teachers have to convince students that global warming is real. And Aaron would tell her, and us, if it was convincing, if it won her over. Was there anything a scientist could say to convince a kid who was already skeptical? Up until now, Aaron says her schools haven't devoted a lot of time to teaching climate change. And it's not really a big subject for Glenn Beck, she says. So most of what she knows is based on her own curiosity, reading she's done poking around the internet. They both, actually, were pretty psyched for this. So, Dr. Johnson, we can't give you a full semester here on the radio to walk through, like, all the arguments one might do. But you're going to lay out some of this case for Aaron. And I understand you're going to break this down into two parts. So can you walk through the first part of your presentation? Well, I think um, the first part is that, you know, when we look at um, measurements taken around the world, we have an overwhelming amount of evidence that um, the climate is warming. And, and we know that from the increase in um, temperature that we observe in the land, the oceans, and the sea. We know that ice and snow cover are decreasing, permafrost is thawing, sea level is rising. All of those things are indicators of um, a warming climate. Now, then the question becomes, um, how do we know that that has an association with um, with carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. And the other piece of that evidence is that we also know that carbon dioxide is increasing um, in the atmosphere dramatically. Okay, so, so that's the first part of your presentation. Like, what's, what's the second part? It, I understand it has to do with something called ice cores? Yeah, so, so there's these really cool ice cores. Cool, I didn't mean as, that as a pun, actually. Um, they um, have drilled these things now for decades in a number of different places. There's got to be at least 20 or 30 of them um, that have been drilled in the Arct Antarctic or in Greenland. These things are like two or three inches across, and they drill these things down and down and down. And each ice core records a nice annual um, record of the temperature um, the atmospheric composition, it gathers dust, it gathers volcanic debris. Um, so they take these things out, they take them back to laboratories, um, and they can analyze them. Um, and those records show very clearly temperature and CO2 have been very closely correlated for over 420,000 years. So as temperature goes up, CO2 goes up. And what we know is that the overall oscillation in temperature and CO2. Okay, um, at this point, uh, Dr. Johnson got into some details that both Aaron and I took a while to grasp, so I'm going to just summarize for you to move things along. Basically, Roberta Johnson was saying, we can explain the way temperature and carbon dioxide rose and fell over 420,000 years by looking at how the Earth was tilting, its position relative to the sun. When the Earth would wobble towards the sun, there'd be more heat and carbon dioxide. When the Earth would wobble away a little bit, less heat, less carbon dioxide. It all matched up until now. Just based on the Earth's tilt and orientation, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere should now be a lot lower than it is. We are 35% higher than we should be. What's the cause? The logical culprit, she says, is human beings and the machines we've made that spew carbon dioxide, CO2, 
you can analyze the CO2 itself. And that's what scientists have done. And they found that the carbon in the carbon dioxide gas is lighter in its isotopic ratio than it should be if it was from a natural source. So what that tells us is that there's a direct tie from the CO2 we're seeing to a fossil fuel source. Okay, so so I feel like some of this has gotten actually a little bit technical. So Aaron, before I ask you if any of this is convincing, I want to ask you, like, do, do you have questions about any of this? Um, not, I think I get, I think I understand most of it. Um, so I'm going to go with no. Okay, that's the way I feel too. I feel like I understand most of it. And, and so Aaron, do you find any of this convincing? Not particularly, not any more than what I've previously read. How come? Because I feel like there are still holes in the theory, like the arguments that the highest temperatures that they've discovered have been in the 12th century and that the satellite images that have taken that have shown the um, shrinking of the ice caps were not entirely correct and that they've taken other pictures that show that that there isn't nearly as much um, melting as they thought. What Aaron's talking about are arguments against global warming that you read. That the Earth got really warm back in the 12th century and it wasn't greenhouse gases causing that. Maybe that's just happening again. And the satellite photos showed Arctic ice melting in one set of photos, but in another, it doesn't look so bad. She also asked why have winters been colder and snowfall greater if climate change is already supposedly taking effect. And she very delicately asked Dr. Johnson about climate gate. Well, if we've learned so much about I'm I'm sorry if this comes off as with the way I started that as disrespectful, but um if we've learned so much about this And one by one, Dr. Johnson answered each of these questions. Yes, it got warmer in the twelfth century, but for reasons that we can name and it was nowhere near as warm as today. Yes, it might be colder in any given winter, but that is just the randomness of weather. That's not the climate. Yes, there's more snow now, because a warmer planet means more water vapor trapped in the atmosphere, which means storms of all kinds become more intense, including snow. Yes, climate scientists said some things in their stolen emails that might seem at first to be damning, but several different commissions working independently all verified that they did not tamper with the data or the peer review process. Yes, the Arctic ice in photos might fluctuate, but the overall trend is clear. So, so Aaron, this explanation of what happened um, in the satellite pictures, do you find that credible and convincing? Like, do you, Does this change your picture of it, what the doctor's saying? I can see where there would then be discrepancies in between the um, like sets of pictures, but yeah. I can. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't sound one over. I wouldn't say that I'm one over. It's just it opens more questions. Like, Aaron, do you feel like like any of the arguments that Dr. Johnson makes about the 12th century, about these satellite pictures, on, on any of these subjects, do, do you, do, is the way that, that you hear it, you feel like, well, sure, that's, that's a perfectly good argument, but you're just getting one side of the picture and that there's another side too? Yes, that is pretty close. And it's like I get that climate does flux and change and that we as people affect the climate. But it's it's all kind of back and forth because you can find plenty of examples to go with global warming or climate change 
and then a lot to go against it. So, do you feel you feel like you're caught up in kind of a he said she said argument? Kind of, yes. Yeah, yeah. But Dr. Johnson, from your point of view, you don't feel like this is something where there okay, there's two sides to this argument. You feel like the data's in, and we have an answer now. Yes, I I do. My point is that this is really not a question of belief. This is a question of science. We look at the evidence, we use our scientific knowledge, and we come to science-based conclusions. Erin, is there anything that any science teacher could say that could convince you of this? What, quite possibly, if I saw both sides of the argument arguing for both for and against global warming, see those two arguments completely side by side, laid out, then maybe I could see how it would be true or even more definitely how it isn't true. Yeah. I just personally feel like this is kind of almost like evolution where you'll have people who will say that, yes, this is fact and this is what happened. And then there will be other people who will say, this is theory. It could go one way. It could go the other. And then there will be the people who say that this is completely untrue. Dr. Johnson, can I ask you, like, I feel like the question that this this seems like it points to from, from, from your side of this, and I hope you feel like you can answer this honestly, is do you think it's hopeless to reach certain people once they're already skeptical? Once someone is skeptical of this and they see it as a he said, she said argument, is it possible to ever get through to them? Well, um, we're certainly going to keep trying. <laughs> um, you know, I think um, they'll come and there's only so far you can go. I, I do tend to think that, unfortunately, you know, there's a spectrum of belief. Um, I, I have to remain hopeful that with when people have open minds and are equipped to um, analyze evidence, um, that they'll come to rational conclusions. Minor authorities. What if you ran a school and you had the kids vote and decide on all the rules? If they decided all the discipline, decided which classes should be taught, and what would happen if you don't show up for class? Can you nap in school? Not to be harsh, but what if the inmates ran the asylum? Well, there's a movement in alternative education called the free school movement. Typically, there are no courses. Each kid studies what he or she wants independently. At the Brooklyn Free School, for instance, a teacher can offer a class where the kids can vote for some class they want created. There are no tests, no homework. There aren't even grade levels, you know, first grade, second grade, all that. And the kids decide everything about how the school is run. If this um, sounds nuts, you should know that since the Brooklyn Free School was started seven years ago, nearly all its graduates have gone on to normal accredited colleges. 
We wanted to see what happens when the kids make all the decisions, so we headed over to the Brooklyn Free School. First agenda item is uh, This American Life. Naturally, to record at the school, we had to get permission from the authorities there, the kids themselves. The proposal is that This American Life project goes forward. Okay. Well, we got that six-year-old on our side there. We're in the school gym. It's about 50 kids, which is the whole school, age 4 to 19. A mix of kids who didn't do well in other schools, some behavior problem kids, some kids of professionals and crunchy parents. It's actually very diverse. There's a short discussion about whether they want to have us in the school. I don't need to be a hater, but I don't know. I just don't really see the whole point of being on a feed on the radio if nothing really exciting is going to happen. After a few minutes, there's a vote. Okay, all for? 38. All against? One. One, two. Okay, so that's two against. And all abstain? That's three. Three? Four. Four. Okay, so that passes. And because that passed, Julian Gunther has this story. Meetings are so central to the Brooklyn Free School that the only requirement at the school, besides showing up, is that once a week you attend what is known as the all-school democratic meeting. But there are other meetings, too. Meetings for teens, meetings for younger kids, impromptu meetings. Meetings can be called by anyone, and they are, sometimes as many as six a day. At times, it can feel like a constant session of Congress, which is by design. Free schools are modeled after our country's approach to government. Give each person a vote, and the collective decisions will be what's best for everyone. So how's it work when the voters are kids? There was the meeting where the whole school decided that a boy who was always acting out should get constant supervision, so kids signed up for hourly shifts to watch him and keep him in line. Or the one where the kids called a meeting on the school's director for eating in a no-food zone. Or the time a student called a meeting, get this, on herself for missing too many days of school. She was asked by her peers to present a case for why she shouldn't be kicked out of school. I happen to know all this because my close friend Catherine is a co-founder and social worker at the school. The first thing you notice about the Brooklyn Free School, it doesn't look anything like a school. It's a five-story brownstone. The gym used to be the living room. The dining room is a library. A former bathroom is the band room. There's an art room and a handful of classrooms, which all look like a cross between a preschool and a teenager's rec room. In the teen lounge, teenagers lie on the floor reading the brothers Karamazov out loud. It is well known that there were frequent fights between husband and wife, but according to tradition... Some other kids go to the store to buy Tic Tacs. Some kids are playing cards. On the second floor, Kai was bothering Martin, and the younger kids are having a meeting to resolve it. If you do it again, we're going to call an all-school meeting and come up with a don't. The first few meetings I watched were not impressive. One Wednesday, I went to an all-school meeting. The topic of the day was the art room. Art room. Uh, What's the proposal? Specifically, the age-old problem of kids making a mess and not cleaning up. There was a long debate about how to fix this, some proposals, and a lot of finger-pointing. The kids mostly seemed bored. An hour later, nothing was decided, and the meeting was adjourned. To me, the whole thing just looked like a waste of time. I wondered, how much math and science and reading could these kids be doing instead of all these meetings? I needed to see more, and I did. 
Over a month, I saw all kinds of meetings at the school. And the one that really tested the question, if kids are in charge, do they make the best decisions, was the meeting about the No Screens Week rule. Okay, so Ari, you're the chair, Nicole, you're the co-chair. To understand the No Screens Week rule, you should know that for the staff, it's a badge of honor. A few years ago, the entire school outlawed using any electronic device with a screen. No computers, no cell phones, no video games. The kids thought they were too distracting. The little ones were addicted. And so to break the addiction, every other week would be a no-screens week. And if you wanted to get on a computer to do some research on a no-screens week, you needed special permission from a staff member, which was a hassle. At a teens-only meeting, a 15-year-old named Malia dropped this bomb. Uh, Malia? So I was thinking we take down no-screens week for, like, I'm thinking people, like, 13 and older. I just think that we need to be able to work and do what research we need to. So that's like a proposal or whatever. I second that. I'm third best. I don't. Order! Order! The no screens rule has been challenged before, but never successfully. Those in favor were quick to speak up. Like Iran, a 19-year-old in an evolution t-shirt depicting a monkey, a human, and a robot. Um, yeah, um, I think it's pathetic, basically, that, 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 I mean, with the No Screens Week, basically, when you do research, you're breaking a rule. School is for learning, and it's so pathetic that when you do research, I mean, it should be encouraged, but it's so pathetic that when you do research, you break a rule. So I think this should just be totally gone with. The adults don't agree. They want the restriction on the screens to stay, but they're outnumbered by the kids by a three-to-one margin. Lily, a teacher at the school, tries to rein them in. I was a teacher and an advisor of the high school when we made this rule, and there was a lot of conversation about the positive things that it would bring for high schoolers. Um, We also talked a lot about the effects that a lot of screen time has on sleep, which is a huge thing for um, people your age, and we talk about that a lot in attendance meetings. So I wanted to bring that up some. And then also I just wanted to say that, of course, no screens week doesn't mean no research. And sometimes you can do better research without a screen. Or is that it? Um, a ram, a ron, whatever. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, first of all, I have some things to say. In response, in response to what Lily said, even though, no sc- even though a screen may not be the only way to research, it definitely is the easiest way to research. I mean... The internet, you can get more information than from a book. That is definitely the truth. I mean, a book, you have to like, look, look, look. The internet, you can just search. So, yeah. I should say here, as the meeting is happening, two kids are texting and one is playing a game on his Nintendo DS, which is fine. It is a screens week. Aram, 12, is Malia's younger brother, and he thinks his sister's proposal is risky. I don't know how many of you were were students here when it was like two years ago that no screens week was taken down for, like, a three-week time period, and it was, like, really chaotic. No one did anything. The only thing anyone did was just sit there using screens. Then a student says that all this is besides the point, because the rule itself is completely inconsistent with the school's philosophy. If you can trust someone to learn what they need to know without encouraging them, shouldn't you trust them to know when to turn a computer off? After 20 minutes of debate, a vote is taken. Six people abstain. Three people vote against. 11-4. It passes. Yes! Wow. 
The result of this meeting, all screens, all the time. Is this an example of kids knowing what's best for them? Seems like a potential disaster to me and every other adult in the room. And right after the meeting, when I asked Iran, the kid who was most vocal about needing his computer to do research, he confided, well, he'd also be playing some video games. A few weeks later, I check in with Lily, a teacher who'd voted against the policy, to find out how things were going. Everyone's been really responsible. There are very few students who have changed how much they use screens since before that was passed. I think it's an interesting thing when you give them that that permission, I guess, or that responsibility. Like, okay, you're voting this through. You're all making this decision. You know, you're all saying, like, we can handle this. And, like, I think that a lot of the teenagers have been very careful not to cause any problems since that rule got passed because they know it's, like, something that they put their stamp on. Like, technically, there could be movies played all day long now, every single day, but they're not. Which means the system's working. For now. Late one Wednesday, near the end of school, everyone's cleaning up and getting ready to leave. And suddenly, word goes up and down the stairs that someone's calling an impromptu all-school meeting. A big deal in the arsenal of Democratic meetings. Anyone can interrupt the whole school at any time and hold court. Who called this meeting and why? Malia. I called this meeting because someone said something that is not appropriate to me. Again. Confusion uh, sets in. A 10-year-old says, I don't think you should waste our time on this. It's crazy to call this meeting. And another student asks, why not call a smaller meeting with whoever did it? Despite the fact that I heard a lot from Malia in the short time I was at school, she's not known for calling meetings or crying wolf. Malia says it's about two brothers, Cruz and Soul. Because I want to show Cruz and Soul that this is an important, that this is not something that they can just do. You cannot say a bad word to someone and just get away with it. So I'm making it an all-school thing now. Infinity? What did they say to you that was so bad? Is that a direct question? They called me a whore, both of them, like twice. I mean, I didn't even do anything to them. I asked them to stop annoying me and Bennett because we were talking quietly in the library and they came up and they said, oh, whatever, you're a whore or whatever. Current? What the hell is a whore? <laughs> That's current. Seven. He and everyone else look over at Cruz and Sol waiting for an answer. But Cruz is only just nine himself and Sol is ten. And sitting in Catherine's lap the brothers appear even younger than they are, and they look a little lost and embarrassed. Catherine breaks the silence. And I'm not, I'd love for Soli and Cruz to talk right now, but they also don't know what the word means, and it doesn't matter what the word means, but it was offense, very offensive and upsetting to Malia, and I'm glad you brought this up, Malia. Malia offers a tasteful and purposely vague explanation of the word whore. The kids get that the word is bad. While it's clear that Malia's angry, it's not entirely clear what the purpose of the meeting is. Does she want them punished? Does she want an apology? Lily tries to gently steer Malia to a conclusion. I wondered, Malia, what you were hoping to get out out of this, if it would be helpful, do you think, to maybe talk in a smaller meeting with them after this, or if there's something else that you're looking for? I didn't really come, like, with the idea of a proposal. I just, I think that when people do something wrong, they need to see that it's something bigger than just them. 
But I just, I think that it needs to stop. People don't know what they're saying, and they say it all the time, and it's just, that's not, that's not even a good way to use the word. It's like, if you're going to use the word, don't just use it when you don't know what it is, randomly. Then Malia improvises something remarkable. She turns the focus of the meeting away from herself. And I'd like to ask to see a raise of hands. I'd like to see how many people have been called something. Nearly every hand in the room goes up. See, it's just so many people, and I think... She asks people to talk about it. I think that, like, a lot of kids do that to me also, and I hate it. Well, we understand that these words are derogatory, so I think we should think of a consequence or a proposal next time somebody curses at somebody else. Whoever the hell made up these curse words was really wrong. Malia proposes they meet again tomorrow to come up with consequences for calling someone a bad name. They all agree. But they didn't do it. In the end, no new rules went into effect. They didn't even meet. When I found out, I was genuinely surprised. One day, this was a big deal to everyone. The next day, forgotten. In the weeks I was at the school, a lot of meetings ended this way. One proposal about kids being too noisy outside and bothering the neighbors a smaller meeting about the Democratic meetings themselves and how to improve them, and a bigger meeting where those improvements were struck down altogether. Another about kids in the kitchen not eating other kids' food, that first meeting I attended about cleaning the art room. A lot of talk with no conclusion. When I ask my friend Catherine about this, she says that's part of the plan. You know, so what if there's no resolution? The point is they're left with something to think about. What are you going to do about it? You know... That's more interesting to me than somebody deciding that this is the way it should be, and then it's all easier and it all goes nicer. When I see Malia a few days later, I ask her what happened. Why no follow-up meeting? She explains, another meeting wasn't necessary. She'd said what she had to. Everyone listened. Other people spoke up too, and she feels better. And it was kind of different. From, like, in a real school, you'd say, I have a problem, and then you get a teacher to deal with it. Or instead of everybody getting together and saying that this is a big problem and that everybody should deal with it and we should, you know, work together to change it. I don't know. It's like I've so got, I've gotten so used to deciding everything. Like, I've had moments where I'll think, like, about something in outside of school and think, oh, I should vote on it, and then it's not, like, I can't vote on it. I I I feel bad that a lot of people don't have the power in their environment like we do because we get to change, like, anything about the school that we want to. When she came into this school five years ago, Malia was scared to say what was on her mind. Over the years, she's learned to speak up, and she's seen that lead to change. She admits the meetings can be boring and frustrating. But she takes the authority she's given by the school very seriously. All the kids do. Malia feels bad for adults, she said, because they can't just call a meeting and take a vote at their jobs or wherever to fix something that bothers them. I get that. Once you're grown up, democracy is not so pure. Julian Gunther. She's a filmmaker currently finishing a film about a new public high school in Brooklyn. Hello, mate. All right? Yeah, I'm all right. 
Our program is produced today by Sarah Koenig with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Jonathan Manhevar, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Senior producer for our show is Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon is our office manager. Production up from Sean Wen and Eric Menel. Special thanks today to Josh Behrman, Chrissy Bailey, Dan Lashoff at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Averbach Transcription. That amazing film, Please Vote for Me, about the third grade election, originally aired on Independent Lens on PBS. You can buy a copy online. We link from our website, thisamericanlife.org. We say goodbye this week to our intern, Sean Wen, who's been great to work with and who we wish the very best. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show are by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who's been puzzling over the ever-changing FCC rules until he finally arrived at this. Whoever the hell made up these curse words was really wrong. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. R.I. Public Radio International.